0: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Roussas John Rushduni, Narrated by Shelby Luke
1: Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Russus John Rushdooney. My prayer is that you will be strengthened by these readings. The insight in which Mr. Rushdooney had is significant, not only then, but in today's day as well. But in no way should it replace your own studies in the Scripture. And I do pray that you will take what you learn and apply it to every area of your life and thought. The Cathars, calcine position paper number 63. One of the most prominent anti-Christian groups of the medieval era, which masked itself as true Christianity, was Catharism. They were a Manichaean or a dualistic people whose doctrines have deeply influenced and infiltrated into Christianity. In fact, Most of the underground forces which earlier and later worked to undermine and destroy Christianity were dualistic. The first article of faith with the Cathari was a belief in two ultimate powers or gods. The good God for them was the source of light and spirit. Being good, he did not create matter which was bad. The evil God, equally strong, was the creator of the material world as a means of entrapping souls in the snares of evil. This was a denial of the doctrine of the Trinity and also of Christ's incarnation. For the Cathari, the Word could not have been made flesh without having been made sinful. Christ only took on himself the shadow or appearance of a man, but he was never truly man. Again, the resurrection of the body was denied. Since flesh for them was evil, God would not glorify an evil nature by resurrecting it. Salvation for them was deliverance from the flesh, not its resurrection and glorification. The second article of faith for the Cathari was the rejection of biblical law. They held that, quote, the law of Moses was given by the prince of darkness, that is, by the malignant God, while the law of the gospel was given by the prince of light that is, by the merciful God, So hostile to the Old Testament were the Cathari that they held that all the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Moses, David, and even John the Baptist, were damned because they belonged to the world of the law. Justice and the law belonged for them to the world of the evil God whom Christ came to repudiate. Salvation for them was deliverance from the flesh, in southern France the Cathari were called Albigenses, after their stronghold in Albi. In Eastern Europe they were called Bogomils, Bulgari, Buguris and Bugries, from whence our word quote, bugger unquote comes. In the Near East they were known as Paulicians. Because of their contempt for the flesh, the Cathari despised sexuality. Marriage was seen as particularly evil because it gave respectability to what they regarded as an evil act. To show their contempt for the holiness of marriage, the Catharis sometimes were ready to practice homosexuality as a means of desecration. Well into the modern era, various revolutionary and anti-Christian groups continued this use of homosexuality as a way of desacralizing the body. In southern France, The Albigensians started their own school systems to undermine Christian teaching. The Cathari had many sects, but within their circles they had two classes of members, the perfecti and the credentis, or believers. The Cathari ate vegetables and fish, they refused to kill most animals, and they may have believed in metempsychosis, the return of the souls of the dead in the bodies of animals. Being against the law, they were against capital punishment, and they were pacifists of a sort. In some areas where they were not as strong, the Cathari masqueraded as good Catholics. Historians are usually favorable to heretics and anti-Christians, so much remains to be explored here. We do know that the Cathari despised God's law and biblical morality, and they did so in word and in deed. We know, too, some had infiltrated the Catholic Church. It is an open question to what extent these covert Cathari applied their ideas towards corrupting men, women, and children while serving as monks and priests. What we call corruption, some of them saw as a moral duty. Liberals and Protestants have often seen the Cathari as good people persecuted by the medieval church. As a result, they have been unwilling to accept the facts of their doctrine. Recent studies have been more than confirmed that the Cathari were what the medieval church said they were. Far from being a happy, joyful people, they were a sour, dirty, and evil group. They were pharisaical and censorious and intensely self-righteous. They had redefined Christianity in terms of pagan dualism, and their Christ bore little resemblance to the Christ of Scripture. They were New Testament, Christians, unquote, who had denied all of the Old Testament and the meaning of the New. For the Cathari, salvation was deliverance from the flesh and from the law. Moses and the law were an obstacle to salvation, because the law assumed that God gave the law to govern the world he made. The Cathari denied that the good God made the world or gave a law to govern it. The Cathari had a catalog of deadly sins. These were the possession of earthly property, associating with men of this world, war, killing animals other than reptiles, eating animal food other than fish, and sexual intercourse. Suicide was common among the Cathari. The perfecti, who had received the consolamentum, their sacrament, could lose their salvation if they sinned after receiving it. To avoid this, they committed suicide or were sometimes put to death by their families. The Qatari thrived as an adversary group. They were at their best in ridiculing and undermining. In Bosnia, Herzegovina, they became Muslims and worked within Islam. They left everywhere an evil heritage. First of all, they had a joy in perversity. The pleasures of sex for them were in sinning against the Christian God, in polluting and desacralizing marriage. A delight in sexual sin became an undercurrent in Christendom. The pleasure was not in sex as such, but sex as sin, as an assault of Christian faith and morals. Denis de Rougemont's Love in the Western World studied the influence of this aspect of Manichaeanism on Western thought and, in particular, on the Romantic movement. Mario Pratt's Romantic Agony is pertinent to the same fact, although its concerns were different. Significantly, too, many subversive movements made a virtual ritual out of immorality and, in particular, of homosexuality. Second, the Cathari hated property because the ownership of houses, land, and things meant a concern over material things. Dualistic cults on gaining power legislate against private property. In fact, the first communist revolution, the Mazdakite revolution in Persia in the 5th and 6th centuries, required the total communization of property, money, and women. It also required incest within families to demonstrate adherence to that dualistic faith. The Christian Armenians resisted and among the mortars was Isaac, Bishop of the Rushtunis, and in the war which followed, 451 A.D., quote, The troops of the Rushtunis unquote, are listed as very active by the ancient chronicler Yegashep. The contempt for property and for material things is contempt for God and for His creation. It is a way of despising His good gifts and the godly uses we are to make of them. It is a rejection of the dominion mandate, Genesis one twenty-six through 26-28, to exercise dominion and to subdue the earth and make it God's kingdom. Christians are all too deeply infected by this Manichean strain. Third, pacifism was advocated by the Cathari. This great profession of being lovers of peace did not make them less active in waging war against Catholics. In the crusade against them in southern France, they took a heavy toll of their enemies by professing to be, quote, peace lovers, unquote, They gained credit for pacifism while being ready to wage war. They were strong for the non-killing of all non-reptilian animals, but they were prone to suicide and murder. They had no sound perspective on human life and animal life. Fourth, Their hostility to marriage made them enemies of the basic institution in God's created order, the family. Being married and having children was, for them, evidence of imperfection and sin. Europe and the churches did not follow the Cathari prescription concerning marriage, but it is strange that what is in Scripture the key institution has been until recently so little studied by scholars. Our view of culture is warped. Because it is not family oriented. Fifth, Catharism placed all the emphasis in salvation on what man does, none on what God has done through Christ. The Cathari were strong free will advocates. For them, for them all men have the principle of self salvation in themselves their souls. Man's soul is good, and man needs only become spiritual by an act of will, by renouncing material things, and he can be saved. Christ came to make men spiritual because, for the cathari, spirituality is by definition good and matter by definition evil. For them, there was no true fall. Only commingling of matter and spirit and salvation was separation from material things, and from all adherence to material or physical things, such as marriage and property. Six, the Cathari were totally antinomian. They hated and denied biblical law and declared it to be the work of the evil god of the Old Testament, the Creator God. As a result, the Cathari could not create a social order. They were a negative group. By their spirituality, they were by choice irrelevant to life's problems battles, and victories. The law is God's justice or righteousness, his plan for establishing his kingdom. The Qathari denied the law of God and the very idea of law because law seeks to order the historical material world in terms of a religious faith. Our faith determines what kind of law and order will govern and direct society. Islamic faith and law give us one pattern, Hinduism, another. Buddhism, still another. The biblical doctrine of order is set forth in God's law. The Cathari were by their faith hostile to all order because they rejected creation, matter, and history. Salvation for them was withdrawal from history. In this respect, they left a deadly legacy of antinomianism and false spirituality to the church. Catholics and Protestants have often alike been infected by the Catharist retreat from history. When we strip the anti-Christian glamorization from the Cathari, we see them as a sad, retreatist group of people with no real future because of the rejection of history. Mark Bloch in Feudal Society, cited by Jaroslav Pelikan in The Growth of Medieval Theology, 600-1300, through said, If I were to sum up in two words what I believe is the essential message of medieval thought, I would say it is the spirit in which it restated tradition, and this spirit is faith and joy. A Catholic scholar, Frederick Heer, in the medieval world, described the sense of great joy and inward freedom which marked the early church and many centuries after. As the medieval era progressed, this joy gave way. Here said, quote, feelings of terror and estrangement, unquote, and a fearfulness before God. The burden of sin replaced the freedom of forgiveness. This was not all. The leadership had left the faith. As here pointed out, quote, in the Italian cities of the 12th and early 13th centuries, it was tacitly accepted that highly respected noblemen and women were heretics. Indeed, in Italy at this time, noble was synonymous with heretic. The Cathari had left an ugly inheritance. Spirituality had come to mean impracticality and retreatism. Christian thinkers were becoming irrelevant, pietistic, and mystical. The same is true again in our time, and its consequences have been deadly. Christianity is much more than a spiritual religion. It is faith in the Creator and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, who requires of us that we occupy till He come, and that all things be brought into captivity to Christ the King. The crown rights of Christ the Lord require this of us. June, 1985 Religious Liberty and Dominion Chalcedon Position Paper Number 64. When the Supreme Court in early June 1985 ruled against prayer in the public schools, even if it were silent prayer, there was much jubilation in humanistic circles and some dismay in church responses. Prayer in state schools dedicated to humanism and anti-Christianity was in itself no great advantage. Prayer in these schools for illiteracy and paganism would be inappropriate as would be mandatory prayers in houses of prostitution. How can there be a blessing on the systematic neglect of the triune God? If faith without works is dead, James 2, 14-26, so too is prayer without works. We cannot ask God to bless what is against His will, nor us if we are where we ought not to be. Some very important issues were raised, however, by the Supreme Court's decision. Implicit in the court's perspective and decision was what the Stockton, California record made explicit in an editorial, June 6, 1985, quote, school prayer ruling sound, unquote, page 12, quote, the know-nothings are at it already, calling the latest Supreme Court ruling on prayer in the school's an act of war against this nation's heritage, the ruling quite to the contrary, is an affirmation of this nation's religious heritage that heritage was religion is a private personal matter, and that government can neither promote nor prescribe its practice. Unquote. It is emphatically true that the u s Constitution held quote, that government can neither promote or prescribe unquote, religious practice on the federal level. In recent years, this has been extended to the states. The premise of this perspective is that God's kingdom cannot be controlled by the state. The early church fought for this, as did the medieval and the modern church. Limits were thereby placed on the power and jurisdiction of the state, limits which the courts now treat as non-existent. If the church enjoys any immunities, it is viewed as a state grant and subject to status change and control. The central evil of the modern view is that, quote, religion is a private, personal matter, unquote. This is a revolutionary idea, a product of the modern era and of revolutionary ideologies. Basic to the Western world has been the premise that, because the God of scriptures is the living God, the maker of heaven and earth and all things therein, any attempt to establish man and society apart from him and his law is suicidal, because the triune God is the way, the truth, and the life john fourteen six any attempt to establish anything apart from him is a lie and a deadly venture psalms one twenty seven one proverbs eight thirty six In terms of this, the free exercise of religion is a necessity in order that the willsprings of human life be nourished personally and socially. To say that, quote, religion is a private, personal matter, unquote, is to say that it is irrelevant. You and I may enjoy crossword puzzles, but such things are not public concerns, merely private ones. On the contrary, however, the faith of a people is the most public of all concerns. In a very real sense, the life of people depends upon its faith. What the state is and its strength and virtue depends upon the faith and character of the people and the integrity of the church's witness. The state can be no stronger than its people in their faith. Our problem in the modern world is that nations confuse strength with armament and with controls over the people. When the state limits the scope and freedom of Christianity, it limits its own strength and paves the way for its destruction. It is not an accident that the de-Christianization of schools and states since World War II have been followed by a great increase in crime, drug use, illegitimacy, sexual crimes, perversions, pornography, and more. In this process, it must be noted that churches have had a great part. By their growing modernism, their socialist gospel, and their faith in status salvation, they have become grave-diggers for both church and state. Religion is both a public and a private concern. To restrict it to a personal matter is to deny its truth and to deny Christianity religious liberty. If, quote, religion is a private personal matter, unquote, then religious liberty has a very narrow scope. The area of religious freedom, then, as attorney William Bentley Ball has noted, is the distance between our two ears. If, quote, religion is a private personal matter, unquote, then it has no legitimate place on the public scene. It should then be barred, as the courts have progressively done, from the schools, the state, and all public agencies. Of course, what is not barred is the new established religion, humanism. It is the new public faith, and its articles of faith are routinely affirmed by public figures as a public duty. The obscurantists deny that humanism exists or dominates. This does not say much for their honesty. The Stockton record went on to say, quote, It is a misreading of the Supreme Court's 1962 decision on organized prayer in public schools and its ruling this week to suggest the court has banned prayer in public schools. It has only prohibited government involvement in a private matter. Anyone can silently pray anytime, any place, and for any reason. Government cannot suggest such prayer or ban it. Unquote. Again, this limits religious freedom to a purely private and personal realm. Such editorial writers are silent when Christian homeschool parents and Christian schools are on trial. Court-ordered testing has repeatedly demonstrated the far greater scholastic achievements of such students, but the courts show no regard for their religious freedom. Do such people really believe in religious freedom for Christians? The past decade has seen the persecution and at times imprisonment of pastors and parents. The press, which heralded this recent Supreme Court decision, has usually been silent in these other cases. Is this not hypocrisy? And how long will the state respect freedom of the press when it destroys freedom of religion? The press, by approving the court's growing fascism, is preparing the way for its own destruction. The Stockton Record quoted Justice John Paul Stevens, our John Paul III, as insisting in the majority opinion of the court That the school prayer violates the quote established principle that the government must pursue a course of complete neutrality toward religion. The state can have such a neutrality only after the court can negate gravity and float in space as it renders its godlike decisions. The state rests on law. All law is enacted morality, and represents as such a religious foundation and a religious faith about good and evil, right and wrong. Neutral laws cannot exist. Laws against murder rest on the premise that man is created in God's image and must live by God's law. Peter J. Ferrara, in the Wall Street Journal, quote, reading between the lines of the school prayer decision, unquote, Tuesday, June 11, 1985, page 32, said, quote, The fact that a moment of silence is inherently neutral between prayer and other forms of meditation or contemplation should have been sufficient for the court to uphold the Alabama law. The majority suggestion that the students would somehow be bullied into praying by the history of the Alabama statute or the expressed hope by some legislators that students would use the time to pray surpasses fantasy. Moreover, in straining so mightily to hold the statute unconstitutional, the court communicated a message to the public of hostility to religion. Unquote. In this century, we have seen a massive persecution of various religions Buddhists in Tibet, Jews in the Soviet Union, Muslims in Albania, Baha'is in Iran, but most of all of Christianity. The Marxist states have, since World War I, slaughtered millions. Turkey massacred Christian Armenians and Greeks. Africa has seen countless massacres in recent years, as has Southeast Asia. Cuba has persecuted Christians, as have many other states. The Christian victims number into many tens of millions. The world press has been largely silent on these matters, and increasingly so. In fact, Many editorial writers act and write on the premise that Christians are persecuting them when they protest such treatment. This should not surprise us. A bully with a bad conscience hates and resents his victims because he knows their presence is an indictment of him. I was told of a schoolyard bully who loved to pick on and mercilessly pummel boys smaller than himself. Then as he started to leave, he would turn on his victim or a bystander saying, you don't like it, do you? Unquote. And whatever the answer, beat up on them at once. Not even an unspoken dissent is tolerable to a bully. The bully press has a very loud voice and it knows that its enemies have a very small one. The new definition of religious liberty is tailor-made to destroy Christianity by reducing its freedom to quote "a private, personal unquote, realm." It is doing what the Soviet Union has done. This kind of, quote, religious freedom, unquote, exists in the Soviet Union. Practically, it means that parents cannot speak about their faith to their children. In some states of the U.S., parents can be jailed for educating their own children, an example by applying their Christian faith to education. In the Soviet Union, husband and wife are often silent about their faith one to another. In a time of trouble, such knowledge can be used against them. As the Soviet Union defines religious liberty, an example as a private, personal matter, it can and does boast of its record of religious freedom. What faith men hold between their two ears, they are free to hold. But Christianity cannot be so restricted. It governs our lives, our marriages, children, homes, schools, churches, civil governments, vocations, arts, sciences, and all things else. It governs them by governing us and making us instruments of God's law and order. It makes us dominion men so that God's kingdom is manifested in and through us. To do this, Christian faith transforms old institutions into new ones and creates new agencies for the new life. It can only do this if our faith is for us a personal and a public concern, the way of life for man and for society. If Christianity does not do this, it perishes. This is what our Lord means when he says, quote, I am come to shed fire on the earth, unquote. Luke twelve forty-nine. What he gives is not a purely private and personal matter. It is a transforming power which will destroy what needs destruction, renovate what needs renovation, and build what needs to be built and established. The Lord declares, quote, Behold, I make all things new, unquote. Revelation 21, 5. Where men prefer their ways to God's justice, they will resent and wage war against God's remaking of all things. Because they see themselves as their own gods, and man as his own source of law. Genesis 3, 5. They want no part of the faith. They will seek to suppress and destroy it without being honest enough to say so. This should not surprise us. It is logical on the part of unbelievers. It has been this way all through history. The important question is this. What will those who call themselves Christians do about this? Will they be silent? Quote, mummified, unquote, churchmen, as General William Booth described them, or will they be the Lord's dominion men? July, 1985. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushby. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus.
2: The blood of Jesus The perfect sacrifice